strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. It is uh, Women in Construction Week, and uh, construction is the world I came from. I think it is a phenomenal career. For someone like myself who didn't have a college degree, had it not been for the trades, I probably wouldn't have had a very good shot at a career. Had it not been for the trades, I never would have been a business owner. So it's something I advocate for. Uh, It is a great career with brilliant people and such great advancement opportunities, and specifically for women in construction. Uh, Joining us right now is uh, Alexandra Monin, Virtual Construction Project Manager at Knox Innovations. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's talk about this, how important this week is as just to, if nothing else, raise awareness that this is an industry that's welcoming to women. Yeah, I agree. To, to me, as a woman, um, it's an important week to just celebrate all the women in the industry, but obviously advocate for more women to join. Um, in the construction industry, women only make up 10.9% of the workforce. So it's really important to get eyes on this field of work that women can join. Um, do you mind me asking, was it something that you always were drawn to or is it what made you decide to get into the industry? Yeah, I actually was not drawn to it. Um, I got into the industry by chance. I needed something to get me through college. So I decided to be an admin on the virtual construction side. Um, And at first, you know, was just like, eh, I'm going to do this job for a little bit and probably leave after college. But quickly after joining, I realized how much I liked it and how cool it is to see something start from ground zero to be, you know, a building or hospital or data center or, um, you know, any of those various projects I've been on. It's just cool to be a part of. So can you explain what you do and how cool this is? Yeah, so um, I'm on the virtual construction side, which a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, this industry or that it exists, but basically we make 3D models of all the content that an electrical contractor is going to put up for their project. Um, so that allows us to do kind of a, a trial run. So we're putting everything in on the computer with all the other trades, um, able to see where everything is going to get installed. And if there's issues, we can tackle them. Um, so that's one advantage of virtual construction. But then also from our model, we're able to produce um, sheet sets, which are basically you know instructions for the field on what they're going to install. So uh, it's a very interesting field cool to be a part of. Um, Again, not many people know about it. So for me, I had no idea about it, but I've enjoyed it. And it, what's what's fascinating to me about this is it's it's a new part of construction. I I grew up in the in the 80s in construction, 80s, 90s, uh, in the early 21st century. This is kind of that new phase of construction that is opening doors for people, and it's a growing industry, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Technology in the construction industry is booming. Um, construction in general is booming. I mean, here, especially here in Arizona, um, by December 2024, we need 265,000 craft workers. Alexander so Monin. 
I'm sorry to interrupt you. Alexandra Monin is joining us. She's a virtual construction project manager with Knox Innovations. Um, so I want to talk more specifically about uh, women entering this field because um, I worked for, when I first started in the industry, a couple of women that were uh, journeyman electricians that taught me a lot. But it was an industry where I think that there – maybe it's changed, but it was women were always welcome. But I don't think they knew that they were. Like they thought it was an industry that was a male-dominated thing and we just didn't want women. Women in the industry. I will tell you that the guys I worked with, there was never an issue working with or for women in the industry. They were largely very welcomed. Is that the way it's going even in a bigger direction now? Yes. In my six years of being in the industry, most of my mentors have been male and they've been very welcoming. Um, I've never felt inadequate or not a part of construction. I've always had such a warm welcoming. So do you now feel motivated to try to mentor other girls that want to come in? Let's say when I say girls, young women that are maybe starting college like you did and kind of have them gravitate to the industry? Yes. In fact, I'm very proud to say that my team here at Knox Innovations recently has grown and a lot of them have been women. So for me, that's a a big goal of mine is just to continue bringing on women um, into this field, into this company and um, helping them build their careers. And that, I'm glad you use that word career because a lot of people look at it as a job, but I, could, I from my own experience, it, it really is construction is a career. You can see the advancement, you can gain advancement, and I would sure in your field in the industry, it's got to be the same way, that it's not people coming in to get a job. They find out that this is a career with good pay and good benefits in a future. Yep, I, I completely agree. Just in my experience, I was an admin, just a college-level entry job. Um, have been a project engineer. I'm now a project manager. So the last six years, I mean, yearly, I was learning something new and advancing. So the Greater Phoenix Chamber and Build Your Future Arizona initiative, which is we've had people from Build Your Future Arizona on the air a few times. This statistic, 265,145 craft professionals are going to be needed by December of 2024. That is a huge number. Do you think we're going to be able to get to that number? I think we I think we can if if we keep um highlighting the industry and especially highlighting the different types of people who can join you know women being one of them I think we can do it well, Alexandra, I appreciate you coming on and representing women in the industry, and I'm glad to hear that this growing part of the industry, this new part, well, new to me, new part of the industry is growing so well, and uh, I wish you well in your career. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mike. All right. That is Alexandra Monin, and uh, just a representation, it's Women in Construction um, a Month or Week, I'm saying, I, I should say, whether you're a young man, young woman, or just someone that wants to change a career and go into an industry that will really feed your family for a lifetime, construction is the way to go, and look up these organizations because they're doing pretty amazing things. Uh, what we're going to do in a moment is shift gears to the topic of crime and punishment, uh, this time specifically about Firearms In Florida, a court upholds age restrictions for gun purchases in the state of Florida. Good thing or a bad thing? We'll talk about that in just a moment.
values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, coming up in just a few moments at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, a very emotional school board meeting that happened at the Washington Elementary School District last night and give you some insight into what happened in that meeting yesterday and what the fallout, what the outcome might be in the future. Right now, uh, an appeals court upholds Florida's 21-year-old, 21-year-age um, requirement to buy guns. A federal appeals court ruled Thursday that, a, that Florida can ca- constitutionally ban adults under 21 years of age from purchasing guns, upholding a state law enacted weeks after the 2018 school massacre in Parkland, Florida. I think, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I am a big states' rights advocate, and I think states having the right to do things the way they want is an important part of it, whether I agree with what they're doing or I don't agree with what they're doing. Um, I think that taking the mystique away from firearms is helpful. Um, I'm not an advocate for kids having guns. Let's be careful. But my girls learned about firearms when they were young, when they were teenagers, pre-teenagers. Um, and we would go shooting as a family. We would go out and I would show them. And you understand, I think for any of you out there that's a gun control advocate, I want you to understand how most, how the how a reasonable person responds. Even if they're not someone that's going to go out and buy a firearm. The first time you hold a firearm, it's a little nerve wracking. When you fire a firearm, whether it's a rifle, a shotgun, or a, a pistol or a revolver, when you fire a rifle or a handgun, it is an ominous feeling. There, the, the power in that firearm is surprising. And you, you learn right away a large sense of um, responsibility. So that's why, you know, I, when I talk about the criminals that shoot other people for no reason or for, you know, for criminal reasons, there is something about them that's just different because I can't imagine, even if you were someone that was an adversary, I can't imagine aiming a gun at you unless my life was actually threatened or the lives of other people were threatened because it is truly that ominous of a feeling. And I wanted my girls to understand that there's a reason why you don't play with guns. You don't play with guns because when kids accidentally shoot other people, it's because they're playing with a gun. Until that first round exits that that, uh, barrel of that gun, they don't realize what that's like until it's too late, unless they've had some level of exposure. And safety training. When you look at families that hunt and they take their <clears throat> their children and their grandchildren and they hunt and they zero in the rifles and they they show them proper safety and and always keep the barrel pointed down range and the safety on and all of the things that go into safely discharging a firearm. Those are the people when you see those kids are well adjusted, they would never point even what they thought was an unloaded gun at someone else. And so my point is taking away, first of all, taking away the mystique, but also um, exposing them to the power before they do something stupid, in my estimation, is a smart thing to do. And, you know, we want our kids in all these areas when it comes to driving a vehicle. Having a kid that's a little bit afraid behind the wheel to start with is a good thing. I, I, did, I wouldn't want – I wouldn't have liked it if one of my kids were looking to try to do donuts when they first got behind the wheel of a car. That The idea that you realize you're in a very – 
heavy vehicle that's going to be driving at speeds where you could hurt yourself or someone else, there should be a little bit of fear. And we all understand before we turn our kids loose, we um, on the roads, there's a test they take and we make sure, I think I did anyway, you make sure they can drive. You want them to be ready for things and all of those things play. It's just common sense for an adult. But there is a difference between guns and crime. And this is what has been total it's been completely connected in our society is that guns equal crime. And I would say to you, it has been my experience that it's the exact opposite, that guns defeat crime. And there are so many examples of that. I actually had somebody on Twitter ask me, tell me when a good guy with a gun and like uh, you're not paying any attention. And, you know, there are most Americans, the vast majority of Americans believe that you should have or can have firearms in your home to protect your home. It makes perfect sense. So it isn't the gun itself. That's the problem. And, you know, and I think we have to look at this. So what Florida did here, does it make Florida safer? And I don't know the answer to that. I'll be honest with you. I if you're talking about my kids, no, no. I will be honest with you. Um, my kids being on their own at 18, 19, 20 years old, having girls living in a house or an apartment with roommates, I would feel much safer if they had a firearm. If they had a firearm in their purse or in their car when they were going to work, that limiting their ability to protect themselves isn't a good thing. So the rub on that is, well, most people aren't like your kids. I can promise you this. Our family was not exceptional. What I mean by that is we were not the <laughs> we were not the shining example of how families are supposed to behave. We were no different than anybody else. I'm just saying that I see firearms differently than most people do. I see it as a tool that protects good people, not a tool that bad people use. Yes, they do, but you have to have people that could offset it. One of the things that uh, we've been talking about all day is the president. He's in his budget. There's seventeen point eight billion dollar investment in the Department of Justice, federal law enforcement capacity. And a lot of it has to do with the ATF alone is going to re- receive one point nine billion dollars and a two hundred million dollar increase in the twenty twenty three budget for gun crackdowns. And some people think that this is a good idea. We'll see. We're going to see. But here's another part of this, this crime and punishment conversation. Teenagers or teens are stealing more cars and they learn how on social media. A big part of this is how we have as a society, we have demonized the heroes and we have made the demons the heroes. So the good guys, the police officers, the cops, the citizens that would stand up, they've been demonized. And we make heroes out of the thugs that are out there stealing cars and carjacking and robbing and, and killing. And I think there needs to be a reversal. There are so many things that go into the behavior of young people. And so guns are not the – if you take guns off the street – which you cannot do, but if you were able to, you are not going to change the life, lives of these young people that turn to crime. I've watched it. I've seen, I've seen kids in crime-ridden neighborhoods where they are surrounded by people that are selling drugs and, and, and committing crimes as school-aged children. And I've watched their lives changed when they're sent in a different direction and they find a different thing to do. And it's something to me that I think needs to be explored in different ways. The idea that the president is going to crack down on guns and it's going to make our country safer, it's just not true.
true. Criminals will always defy the gun laws. They always have. They always will. Law-abiding citizens in cities like Washington, D.C., where carjacking is through the roof. New Orleans, Louisiana, where you know that it is through the roof, 150% increase. The uh, law enforcement in, in New Orleans is warning car owners, hey, listen, don't loiter in your car. Don't sit around and hang out in your car. You're setting yourself up for a carjacking. And these are cities with very strict gun laws, but not very strict punishments for criminals. We can disagree on the gun issue, but you can at least listen to my or explore my theory and look and see if I'm right, because I am. Chicago, New York, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., the Pacific Northwest, defund the police and crime goes up. That's just what happens. In a moment, an in some insight, a very emotional board meeting yesterday in the Washington Elementary School District. I'll give you details of what happened and why it happened coming up in just one moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, so there was a big emotional uh, meeting yesterday at the Washington Elementary School District. So I want to remind you, I'm going I'm to get into it myself, but Chase Golightly over at 12 News talked about what is the battle between Arizona Christian University and the Washington Elementary School District. Everyone is here after the district cut ties with Arizona Christian University because of a statement of faith policy their student teacher signed, saying marriage should be between a man and a woman. The district concerned about what this would mean for the LGBTQ plus students. It means nothing for the LGBTQ elementary school students. Let's start there. These kids aren't getting married. And nobody from ACU said anything to these kids. Isn't this fascinating? So you've got parents that are upset about sexualized curriculum. Why are we talking to elementary school children about sex? But they do. You know, they want to make sure that it's available and the books are in the school library and they do talk about pronouns and there's all of these things happen. And parents are saying, it's none of your business. Knock it off. So isn't it fascinating that in a group that disagrees with you you're the tolerant ones. We want tolerance and acceptance in our school district. Except you, Arizona Christian, because you don't believe what we believe. So we are throwing you out at a time where we have about a 25% teacher shortage in a district that's in the elementary schools. So I'm going to start there. Why does the LGBTQ plus agenda, uh, political stance, moral high ground, whatever you want to call it, why does it have a place? in the elementary schools? The answer is it doesn't. It has sexualization of any kind has nothing to do in the elementary schools. Nothing, especially the morality of sex. When we talk about sex education and the biology of sex education, whether it's STDs or it's how you get pregnant, where do babies come from, that certainly has nothing to do with the elementary schools. But even at the higher grade levels, that's science, that's biology, that's not morality. This is a moral conversation, and it wasn't started by Arizona Christian University. 
This moral conversation, this contract has gone on for five years in this district where ACU students are in the classroom learning to be classroom teachers at a time where there's teacher shortages. There has never been a complaint that an ACU student teacher ever said anything negative to or about the LGBTQ plus community. What they did is in their personal lives, they signed a pledge at the college they go to to stick to Christian principles. Now, isn't it fascinating that if the school district has a policy that says you're going to sign on to being LGBTQ plus friendly, that policy is okay to sign that. That's why they got rid of ACU. ACU doesn't subscribe to the same ideology as at least three members of the school board. And I would say more. So they're out. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense. No sense at all. That the school district at a time when there is a 25% teacher shortage is telling students who are already students in education, you can't teach in our district because your view on marriage is different than our view on marriage in an elementary school. It is, this is a political attack. And it is saying to people of faith, you can you can believe whatever you want. You just can't do it here. Okay, that's where the lawsuit comes in, because there's going to be a lawsuit for religious persecution. And there should be. Isn't it fascinating that the the members of this school board take the moral high ground on inclusion, and yet they're the only ones that are being exclusionary? ACU has their belief system. ACU is a school. Dr. Len Munsell, uh, his wife, Dr. Tracy Munsell, they've never gone to the Washington Elementary School District and said, we will not expose our students to your belief system on the LGBTQ plus community. We are not sending our students into your schools. Nope. The other way around happened. The school board said to ACU, your students signed that pledge. We won't let them in our classrooms. Who's being exclusionary? Who's not being accepting? Who's not being, um, uh, what would you call it, um, uh, people that are accepting of other beliefs? Yeah, tolerance is a great word. Thanks, Julia. Who's the intolerant one? They stand there on the moral high ground. Now, and I have to admit, I watched the beginning part of this meeting. There is one particular board member who has made national news with some of the things that she said. She doesn't stand for the for the Pledge of Allegiance. She does all the things that I don't like anyway. But that doesn't mean that she shouldn't be on the school board because I don't like what she does. But when you're putting sexuality, and that's what LGBTQ plus is, it's about sexual orientation, born or whatever you want to call it. They are a, this is a sexual, sexually driven choice. What I'm saying is the agenda is we are LGBTQ plus friendly. Why is it in the elementary school? Why? There's no there is absolutely no reason that the belief system at Arizona Christian University clashing with the belief system of the school board plays any role in the education of these elementary schools. This is about school board members not liking what ACU does. So they cut their nose off in spite of their face. They're already understaffed. And I've been told and I I would love to verify more of the numbers that multiple teachers and multiple principals after the 
this decision were made have resigned their positions. So when the governor talks about, um, you know, whether it's uh, the critical race theory bill that she just defeated or whatever it is, when the governor talks about we need to focus on this and this is why teachers leave the classroom, if you le- read some of the things that are being said by the teachers organizations, the AEA, AEU, what they're saying, they're saying all of this oversight that you keep pushing for, Tom Horn and the oversight of what's going on in the classrooms and being able to punish teachers that are teaching their own personal agenda is why teachers are leaving the industry. Well, here's an example of what your school board just did and teachers and educators are leaving the industry. So why is that okay? This is absolutely so here's here's a here's just a quote from Governor Hobbs. These kinds of things, whether they're signed into law or not, are absolutely intended to have a chilling effect on speech in the classroom. Really, let's talk about very quickly. So I'm running out of time in this segment. Let's talk about speech in the classroom. Who is out there changing the words that you can use to address people? Who is it out there that is part of the cancel culture, depending on the verbiage you use to describe a community? Who is it out there that says words are weapons? Certainly isn't me, and it certainly isn't Arizona Christian University. It is people on the other side. So when it's their war on words, their war on labels, their war, their war on pronouns, there are people out there that want you punished criminally punished if you use in if not inappropriate if you you if you use the unwanted pronouns for someone you should be held criminally responsible and the governor says this has got a chilling effect on speech in the classroom i mean it is it, it is mind-boggling that everybody doesn't see the hypocrisy in that you are being told you have to use these pronouns. You have to address people this way. Uh, we're making all these cases now for younger and younger people to change how they're being addressed, whether or not their parents should ever be told. All of this is happening. But on this issue, on this specific issue, you've got an elementary school district that has just as many shortages in teaching positions on average as anybody else does, turning away young teachers because they signed a pledge that the board disagrees with. And until the, this school board brought it up, nobody even knew. The students didn't know. The board didn't know for five years. Now, all of a sudden, it's a travesty and it needs to end. I cannot wait to see the results of this lawsuit. And the last thing I'll say on it, you get the school boards you deserve. I don't live in the Washington Elementary School District, but if I did and I had a vote on the school board, in the end, you get to say who's on that school board and who isn't. And if you're not paying attention to who is leading the curriculum, the conversation, and the teachers in your school district, shame on you. Pay closer attention to your elections. Coming up in a moment, uh, are Mitch McConnell and Dianne Feinstein example of what's wrong with American politics? It's not what you think, but we'll talk about it in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. All right, here is two examples. Mitch McConnell hospitalized after falling at a hotel and having a concussion. So I wish him the best. I wish him well. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein is uh, not running for re-election and didn't even remember it. Dianne Feinstein was asked about not running for re-election, and she said she didn't even know that was going on. And her staff had to remind her that they had sent out a statement. Mitch McConnell is 81 years old. 
Dianne Feinstein is older. So when I ask the question, are they examples of what's wrong with American politics? It has nothing to do with their politics. Here's what my point is. I think I said this in front of a group recently, a couple of groups I spoke with. It is my belief that any organization that is healthy, flourishing and has a bright future is raising up and training the next generation of leadership. If you're a corporation and you're on the board of directors, there are young executives that come out of college and show promise that you mentor knowing that someday they may be sitting in your chair and you are ensuring the future of your corporation by entrusting it to brilliant young people that you mentor along the way. One of the things that I love the most about this organization that I work for, Bonneville Broadcasting, is that we bring in interns from the Cronkite School of Journalism. They treat them well. They they take the one the young people that are so good at what they do, they see the uh, potential in them, they foster that potential, they bring them on as employees, and they watch them grow as the next generation of leadership. The older I get, the more I look, think about legacy. And I can tell you that nothing has made me feel better in the last three years of working in this place than working around people that are much younger than I am that are absolutely brilliant at what they do. And knowing that it's not me, but the people in here in management in this company find those gems in the world and they foster their growth, ensuring that the future of this company, by the way, this radio station has been around for 100 years, ensuring that for the foreseeable future, we have people on the bench that are now becoming starters that are going to be becoming all stars. That's just this company. American politics does not do that. I'm going to speak specifically as the Republican Party. Republicans, and they, both sides do it, but I don't know much about the Democrats because I'm not invited into their meetings. But Republicans, we don't train leaders like we should. There's organizations out there, um, the TARS, the Teenage Republicans, the YRs, the Young Republicans, College Republicans. And I know they're the same things with the Democrats. Why aren't – and I'm not talking about volunteers who are phenomenal, that foster this attitude in kids. Why aren't the political leaders bringing these young people in, at this time they're kids, bringing these kids in and showing them what the future looks like? And if they are doing it, they're not doing it enough. Why is it that our elected officials are 80, 90 years old and still in office? And it's not because they can't necessarily, but why aren't they saying, my time is done, it's time for us to have fresh new leadership? Because if you look at what happens many times in Republican politics anyway, it's always somebody you don't know. I shouldn't say always. Many times it's somebody you don't know that pops up and says, hey, you know what? I want to get involved. Instead of volunteering, I'm going to run for governor. I'm going to run for Senate. I'm going to run for some big office. And, and you don't have any experience. You don't have – now, that's not a bad thing all the time. But Ronald Reagan gave a speech in 1964, I believe. It was called A Time for Choosing, and it raised a million dollars for Barry Goldwater's campaign. Ronald Reagan would later say there would never have been a Ronald Reagan had it not been for Barry Goldwater. That 1964 speech was a coming out party for Ronald Reagan. People were like, man, who is this guy? Now, many people knew him, but a lot of people didn't. It was 1964. He went on to become a governor. He went on to become all of these other things. And it wasn't until 1984, 20 years later, when he won 49 states for reelection, that Ronald Reagan became the Ronald Reagan that everybody remembers. 
But it was a it was a lifetime. It was a career of growth and mentoring. And, and Reagan said, I would not be Ronald Reagan without Barry Goldwater. Where is that leadership today in American politics? Where is it when somebody that's in a position of power says, I can't do this forever? I've got to I've got to start mentoring some younger people. We're not going to be on this board. We're not going to be in political leadership. We're not going to be, you know, party party leaders forever. We're not going to be elected officials forever, forever. Where are the young people that are the shining stars of the future that we are showing them what we did and giving them the best advice we can? You want a successful organization? Start raising up your young people and giving them positions of power, which means you have to give up some. It's frustrating to see this happen. There are some brilliant people out there that deserve opportunities. There are brilliant young people that need to be mentored and molded into the brilliant um, leaders of the future. And we're missing the boat in politics because I see so many good examples of it around me every day of people that are doing it right. I just hope we get over this soon enough. Coming up after 10 o'clock, could good job news be bad news for interest rates? You know how that works. We're going to talk about the job numbers and what's happening in the U.S. economy and the president's budget. All of it next.